My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. I don't know if this happened to you, but back when this pandemic started, in February and March, I noticed a change in my daily news routine. I became vastly more interested in the people and the organizations that were covering COVID-19 in the areas that matter to me, the closer, the better. I started listening to local news radio a lot. If you remember, one of our first episodes when offices shut down was with the news director of a local station here in Toronto. Because when the crisis is everywhere, what matters to people is how much of it is close to them. I mean, I would have listened to a news radio station that covered just my neighborhood, if that was possible. And I was lucky because I live in Toronto and there are a ton of ways for me to find out exactly how many cases of COVID and how many deaths and how close they are to me. But Toronto is not the only part of the country that matters to me. My family farm is in a tiny little corner of the eastern townships in Quebec. And my parents live there for a good chunk of the year. And let's just say that there's not the same kind of information out there. When I was small, there was a newspaper based in the tiny little town just down the highway. That's long gone. There were also a handful of both English and French daily newspapers that were spread out across the eastern townships. Now, there is one, just one, in English for the entire area. And this story is not special or unique. As COVID-19 arrived in Canada's smallest communities, people needed local information on the virus. And in a lot of places... There were few, if any, reporters around to cover it. And now, there are even fewer local newsrooms around than when it began. So how did we end up here? How is it possible that this virus has made local news both more necessary and more impossible to sustain as a business than ever before? Rawlings, this is The Big Story. Professor April Lindgren is the Velma Rogers Research Chair at Ryerson University. She is the Principal Investigator for the Local News Research Project. Hello, April. Hi there, Jordan. Uh, Very simply, as my first question, because I honestly have thoughts on both sides of this answer, um, has COVID been good or bad for local news in Canada? (laughs) Well, I know exactly why you have mixed thoughts about it. Um, You know, on one hand, people have been more reliant on local news than in recent memory. And they recognize that um, traditional news sources are are, are the place to go for independently produced, timely, verified news. And, you know, surveys have shown that Canadians are pretty well aware that they don't really or can't really count on just what they get from social media. 
So that's that's the positive side. You know, 51% of people are, are turning to these news organizations. This was back in the spring when the pandemic hit. Only 10% thought that they uh, w- would rely on uh, social media. Um, and, and, and people have really recognized that they need local journalism to tell them what's happening in the local nursing homes or the hospital or what the cases are uh, in their communities and, and what uh, level of lockdown they're going to be in. So that's, um, I guess, a silver lining for the media um, in the pandemic. But then there's the other side of it, which has been the job losses, the closings, um, the eradicated in many cases or almost eradicated advertising revenue that has just made it pretty impossible to um, to keep staffing levels what they were or to even keep in operations. And we've been tracking the carnage specifically since COVID started. Well, maybe you can quantify that uh, a little bit for us. I read a pointer story that said at least 25 local newsrooms in America had shuttered during this. Now, that was a while ago. Um, I always assume it's more than that at this point. Uh, Did we, I guess, did we even have that many local newsrooms that were healthy left to lose in Canada? And what's been the actual actual toll of this? Well, once the pandemic started and we started seeing um, sort of a regular announcements of of job losses or closings permanent or temporary, um, I started working with the um, the Canadian Association of Journalists and the JSource news website. And um, between the three of us, we launched uh, what we called the COVID-19 Media Impact Map for Canada. Uh, and basically what we set out to do is to track what exactly is the impact of of the pandemic. The, the latest data that we have show that 38 news outlets have permanently closed, uh, including three private radio stations and, uh, and, and 35 community newspapers. Wow. That's since the pandemic was declared back in, um, yeah, in, in, in early March. And but, you know, Jordan, that's not just that's not that's just the start. You know, 141 um, news organizations have announced layoffs and job losses now. um, And and, and we've been tracking those. And we know that twenty five hundred jobs, these are editorial and non editorial jobs um, have been uh, cut. Now, some of those have been temporary and they've started to return. But we know for sure, at least so far, that at least uh, 810 jobs have been permanently lost. Now, these aren't just in newsrooms. These are in newsrooms on the advertising side throughout these um, media organizations. But I mean, it's it's significant. And it's because if you think about what's going on, um, these local news organizations, in many cases, were relying on, you know, the local pub advertising or um, a concert uh, happening or, you know, the movie listings. Um, and and all of a sudden, that sort of advertising just went away uh, because those businesses have been shuttered. Um, not just once back in the spring, but increasingly um, again. I mean, I know this sounds like a very uh, simple question that I'm about to ask, but why is that happening at the same time as, you know, we're hearing anecdotally from everyone, but also you know, uh, at a countrywide level that people are more reliant than they have been in past years on uh, local news sources for information on the pandemic? Well, I I mean, it's because quite a few news organizations are still reliant on advertising. And if the businesses aren't operating, the advertising dollars aren't there. And even, you know, when they kind of limp back to life, as they did kind of in the summer and fall, 
you know, those businesses took a big hit earlier in the spring. And so advertising budgets aren't at all uh, what they were or even available. If you're, you know, if your your dining room is reduced to 50% or shut down again, like it is now, there aren't advertising dollars and advertising mm-hmm. is still um, a fair bit of, of what those news organizations were relying on. And in, you know, in other cases where, where, where they had tried to diversify their revenue sources by, say, organizing events um, with speakers or to discuss community issues, um, you know, some news organizations have been, have been trying to do that and they would sell advertising um, for these events. And, and that's how they would earn some money from these types of events, while at the same time, you know, creating conversations about local issues in, 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 in communities. Well, guess what? What else has been shut down? Public events and public gatherings. So that also was a, a revenue stream that has has been um, uh, basically eliminated. And then finally, of course, you know, people um, don't like to pay and some people can't pay. And so um, they're not buying subscriptions or making donations to news organizations um, to uh, basically keep them going. Because I think people don't realize how expensive it is to gather news and to provide news for communities so that um, people can find out important health information or emergency information or political information. You talk to people who are doing the work uh, in these newsrooms. How have they handled that challenge of, you know, adapting to uh, a once in a lifetime event that demands more of their coverage than ever before with the economic impact on the resources they use to gather the news? Like what's changing? Uh, What's it like in local newsrooms right now? Well, people are, 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 were stretched before. I mean, we did a survey um, at the Local News Research Project of small market newspapers um, a year or so ago. And, you know, at that point, editorial personnel in the newsrooms were talking about working longer hours, producing more stories. Um, and then on top of that, if you add in yet another round of layoffs, it's just really, it's really tough. On the other hand, you know, um, I think people have, News journalists have have risen to the occasion and have recognized the importance of what they're doing um, during the pandemic, whether it's explaining to people how to wear a mask properly or why masks work or or letting them know what the latest um, numbers are in terms of local infections from the, the public health unit. Um, I mean, journalists have risen to the occasion, but it hasn't been easy. And I think there are a lot of people um, on on the verge of burnout, if, if not burning out. So it's really, I, I have great admiration for what journalists have been doing with less and less at a time when they're being asked to do and need to do more and more because we're literally really talking about life and death matters now. My name is John Cullen and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling it's the story of broomgate how a single broom yes a broom turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500 year old sport of curling it was a year i'd like to forget broomgate available now have we seen um any change in the amount of trust that people say they have uh, in their local media specifically. I know that's something that that we've long talked about dwindling, and I, I would have hoped at least, uh, to your point, matters of life and death might uh, 
lead some people back to more trusted sources? Well, I mean, the surveys certainly that were done earlier in the pandemic, as I mentioned earlier, uh, um, surveys conducted earlier in the pandemic um, showed that 51% of people were relying upon mainstream uh, media for for their information related to the pandemic, and only 10% were uh, turning to social media. So to me, that is a vote of confidence in in and a recognition that what journalists have been doing and, and providing um, is 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 an indicator of, of trust, you know, and at the same time, three quarters of people who were surveyed, this is again back in the spring, said that social media platforms were less reliable in their view um, than traditional news sources. So I, I, I kind of think of it as when the when the times get tough and, and we are talking really important news and information that's vital for people's and individuals' ability to navigate life in general, um, they are turning to trusted news sources. Um, but that, of course, doesn't mean there have been increased significantly. More of people have been willing to pay for it. <laughs> and that's the problem is, is, you know, generating the revenue to keep news organizations alive. And where should that money come from? Well, that brings me to kind of a, a moral question that I wanted to ask you, I guess, uh, as to whether or not news organizations should be putting uh, COVID-19 content behind their paywall. Uh, I've seen, you know, here in Toronto, where we do this show from, uh, the Toronto Star and the Globe and Mail have both gotten slammed for that, uh, for putting some of their exclusive stuff behind a paywall, even though it, uh, you know, definitely relates to public safety. And I imagine in smaller communities where these newspapers might be the only source of these stories, there would be even more pressure to put that out for free. Yeah, it's a it's a really tough one. Um, on the one hand, if you give away the content that people really want, they're not going to be inclined to buy a subscription or to make a donation necessarily to help support the kind of reporting that people want to read and or watch. So, so you, you give it away, but you don't get any revenue from it. You still have to find the money somewhere to produce that news. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I don't know what the answer to this one is, but I, I think that if the answer is, if, if the choice is between not doing the reporting because you have to lay off half of your reporters or charging for subscriptions, I'm kind of leaning towards the business model here. Now, having said that, I, I feel somewhat comfortable doing it because we have a public broadcaster. And um, for the most part, people have access to at least some local or regional um, news, even if that's available from the public broadcaster or from, you know, uh, radio, commercial radio and television stations that um, that aren't paywalled. Um, you know, the paywall issue is is particularly troublesome for for newspapers where they're kind of caught between a rock and a hard place, I would say. Well, it's fascinating to me because um, I absolutely see the point that this is necessary information and it should be removed from the paywall. On the other hand, if we're having this conversation 20 years ago, nobody is complaining that the star is not standing on street corners handing out free copies of the newspaper because people need to know the news. Yeah. On the other hand, if one person bought the newspaper, they could just hand it around to their neighbors. Um, but I guess you could share yes. passwords. <laughs> That's probably something. <laughs> Don't I, give people I, I ideas I, I on this show. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
<laughs> yeah, it's it's um it's a it's it's a it's a real it's a real tough one. I mean, part of the problem is that people uh I think the general public doesn't really understand first of all how precarious the situation is for 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 most local news organizations. So that's one thing. Um and the second is they don't quite understand who actually generates reliable news. Um there is a survey done in the states recently where quite a significant bunch of the population said they weren't sure if Facebook and Google how much reporting they did directly. And the answer of course is none. They do no reporting directly. But people actually entertained the idea and, and thought, well, yeah, yeah, there's I guess they do, maybe they do some. But there was massive confusion about that, which I think speaks to this whole issue of what is involved in 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 rounding up news that that people can trust and rely upon and i think there's a, a a quite a misunderstanding about how expensive that is and how challenging that is and and why it's something that you need news professionals to do and they incidentally also need to eat so they need to be paid well you mentioned that it's a precarious situation and uh, I think we talked about this for the first time uh over a year ago before the last federal election about what the death of of local news outlets was doing to the political process um here we are 16 18 months later uh the situation is more dire the news is also more dire this this decline in local coverage can't continue on an indefinite level like at some point we pass the point of no return here right well I mean that's one of the big questions that we're trying to look at in Canada is uh what's going to be left and are there going to be communities where there is no local reporting um that that people can rely upon and then what are the consequences for that and we know certainly from the states where they have been doing more research and they've had more funding to do research that um uh you know co- the consequences include reduced election participation incumbents tend to get elect uh, get reelected more easily um there's a potential for increased um uh divisions and and um people being sort of very much polarized on issues because you don't have somebody re- reporters exploring potential solutions or potential areas of compromise you only know that everybody's butting heads and and you know because that's what you get from a you know a quick short news story um on on one of the platforms or on broadcast media or in, or in your newspaper that just produces briefs now because nobody has the time or 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 money to explore well what happened in this community in another community when they tried to solve this problem and how did that work So the increased polarization is an issue and of course if there's a um a vacuum into that vacuum will leap partisan interest vested interest um with you know sites that look like news or in rumors will spread on 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 social media um neighborhood sites there's there's lots of potential for for problems that that are I think we will only gradually discover and and understand in the canadian context as as places end up with either one that really really limited local news organization or or nothing at all as you've done this research um and spoken to people in in smaller areas across the country have you seen any um signs of innovation in the format um people doing things cheaply and with less resources maybe a different way um exploring other mediums uh local podcasts i don't know uh what's out there 
Well, I think there are some innovations. I mean, one spectacular one is um, happening uh, out of Concordia University's Institute for Investigative Journalism. And what's happening there is it's a collaboration between um, all the journalism, major journalism schools in the country, including my university, and uh, and and news uh, local news organizations ac- across Canada, and they've undertaken major investigative uh, uh, journalism projects. So last year's project was a look at, uh, at lead contamination in drinking water across the country, um, and it uh, was a incredible. Um, had an incredible impact that resulted in changes in regulations, authorities becoming more open about lead levels, um, you know, improved testing. And um, and the project was just nominated for a, a Michener Award for Public Service Journalism. So that's, um, I think, a, a really great example of the power of, well, of two things. It's a great example of, of two things. The first is um, the power of collaboration, uh, which I'm increasingly seeing as having great potential. And and by that, I mean, uh, collaboration in, in the sense that if you're living in a medium sized city, and there's only a few news organizations left, instead of trying to cut each other's throats competitively, how about collaborating on some projects to do investigations, um, in particular, because those tend to take more time, and resources and reporters. Um, so, so collaborations among news organizations, I think, is is something that we can look to do in the future and has potential. And then, of course, there's the role of of journalism schools. Um, and you know, journalism schools are uh, were a major part of the uh, Institute for Investigative Journalism's Tainted Water Project. Um, and student journalists were out there, you know, really making a difference in the in the in terms of the work they did and the investigations that they. Um, participated in and everything from, you know, collecting water samples and and convincing people to test their water to, to interviewing sources and writing the stories. So, so that's one, one area, I guess, where I think there's, there is potential Um, collaboration um, amongst news organizations and the participation and collaboration of journalism schools, um, which also has the benefit of training the next generation of young, smart, aggressive reporters that will hold power to account and and produce great storytelling that we need um, in the future. Are there enough jobs out there across Canada right now to employ that next generation of journalists that are coming through on these projects? <laughs> yes. Well, that is a that's a challenge. So another example of innovation was is, is a site in Calgary called the Sprawl, and um, the guy who runs it describes it as pop up journalism. So what he does is he runs, uh, he'll run the, the site for a while and do some aggressive reporting on a, on, a, on a particular issue, but then he'll kind of back off and, and take a break and regroup. And then when the next issue comes along, maybe it's the city budget or the, uh, a, a municipal election um, or a, a particular public issue, he'll, the news organization will pop up again and do some intensive reporting on, on that particular topic. So that's just another example of innovation that I, I, I wanted to flag to you. So I think that there are opportunities um, in these types of news organizations for students and talented writers. Um, I'm not going to say it's easy, um, but I just think the stakes are so high. We need to have capable people coming out of our journalism schools um, that, that can do this this kind of work. Because to give up on that is to give up on a major pillar of our local democracy. 
Finally, what kinds of things um, might change uh, on a macro level, maybe on a policy level? I know that in the past there's been a lot of talk uh, about making the tech giants, uh, you know, the Googles and the Facebooks of the world, pay their fair share uh, for the advertising that they siphon away. And that seems to be something that gets closer and closer to happening. Do you feel like that kind of stuff is actually on the horizon? Well, certainly it's closer to happening than it ever has been before. Um, the discussion is framed more around the idea that they should pay for the news that's shared on those sites. Um, and, you know, the debate around that is that, uh, you know, from the platform's point of view, well, you know, we're just the platform and, and providing the news and we're actually helping out news organizations by making sure that their stories are spread far and wide. The counter argument to that is that, well, actually, they have a monopoly because if a news organization doesn't post its stories on Facebook or on Google, they'll disappear. They, they will have zero online presence. So so I think that, um, you know, countries like Australia are, are taking a good hard look at this and, and moving in that direction. And there seems to be some suggestion here in Canada that that's going to happen. The other thing is that, um, you know, the federal government has launched um, a, a, what's called a local journalism initiative, where it's a basically paying uh, most of the cost for for um, the hiring of journalists to work in local news organizations, where those um, news organizations can make the case that um, they have um, an area or a, a subject matter that's that's uncovered or isn't getting sufficient attention. So that is actually, I think, creating jobs for journalists across the country, including young journalists, which I'm sort of I'm I'm very much encouraging my students to to take a look at those kinds of opportunities because often it's they're happening these jobs are appearing in smaller communities uh and at smaller news organizations um outside of the the big cities so um you know i'm i'm urging my students to go forth into the country and and uh and have an adventure and and cover news and get great experience so i think that those are um opportunities that have been created by a policy decision to support journalism at a time when the private sector is obviously struggling to uh, support, to, to produce the kinds of journalism that we need. Hopefully those next generation of journalists can, uh, can take those offers and go where they're most needed. Thank you so much, April, for uh, talking to us today. It was my pleasure not to deliver the bad news, but to deliver news that I think things will change and hopefully get better. April Lindgren of Ryerson University and the principal investigator for the Local News Research Project. That was The Big Story. For more from us, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. We've got more than 600 episodes for you now, so I'm sure you'll find at least one more that you'll like. You can find us on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN. You can email us anytime, especially if you have a story we should cover. We are at TheBigStoryPodcast, that's all one word, all lowercase, at rci.rogers.com. And of course, we're in your favorite podcast player. Doesn't matter which one. We're in all of them. And actually, if you find one that we're not in, drop us a line because we got to fix that. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. 
It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now.